0: From You're listening to Talking Rugby with me, Matt Burke. Today I'm Matt Burke and welcome to Talking Rugby. Now, my guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyhow. He's the most successful captain in the history of Australian rugby and he became one of only 20 double World Cup winners. He's an author, he's a businessman, a broadcaster and even has a medal named after him. I am, obviously, talking about the one and only John Eels Welcome, mate.
1: Hi, Matthew. How are you? Um, mate, you've never a me Matthew. <laughs> no, <you>? know. <laughs> What's going on I there? I thought this seemed to be a fairly official sort of... Oh, uh, no, no not, not at be all. a pretty official launch. Okay, Berkey. Yeah, no that's way, it. Berkey. Perfect,
0: perfect. Now, uh, I know, obviously, a lot about you. I've played with you for, for so many years. Uh, I know that you don't like bananas. I don't like, <laughs> don't like coffee. Uh, but I did a little bit of research on you last time as well. I just had a little look around, and... and and like I, I, there was awards aplenty, plenty. Like when you, when you look at what you've done and what you've been able to achieve, it's just tick the box on everything. You've, the only thing you haven't got is Australian of the Year yet. Just about on the on the way through. Um, I knew you were a superstar, but I didn't know you were that much of a superstar because you are an incredibly modest guy. How do you uh, how do you walk around town just being being John Eels?
1: I'm not sure how I answer that, Berkey, but. Uh... Now, look, I think I've been really fortunate to be in a lot of uh, great teams in the different things that I've been able to do, to be in things, to be involved in things that people are interested in, like like rugby. Through our time, we had some great times, and and really, I think through our era, we had some great players. So, I think the captain tends to get overweighted as far as the credit for for a lot of those things, um, and that that there's probably a bit of that involved. Did you? Did you find that
0: uh, you fell into that captaincy role or was it something that you aspired to? So 1996, I think you got the role of, of captain. Um, was it something that you always dreamt of?
1: certainly wasn't anything I coveted and nor dreamt of, but uh, I, I think it was, and yeah, if you go back to that that time, 1996, and probably ironically, I think probably you and I were the only people that Everyone was saying we're guaranteed their spots in the team at that stage because it was a pretty unsettled time, a lot of new guys breaking through. Sorry, mate, can you just repeat that again? <laughs> <bit>? <laughs> Sorry, maybe You were the only one guaranteed no, your spot no, in the team and you got you know, the I was just team. hoping to get in there. No, and I think, uh, and, and, and so it more became, I think they really had to look at, you know, the captain has to be someone who's going to be picked week in, week out because yeah. you can't have that instability around a role like that. So I suppose that, that went in my favour. Um, and look, when I first stepped into the role, there was a lot that, there's a lot that you don't realise that goes with it. You are aware that it's going to be a step up in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of things that, um, I think you probably take for granted that the captain does and has to assume and absorb in that team environment. So it did take me a while to get used to it and it probably took me a while just to, um, just to be confident enough to be myself in the role too. Because you try to be a little bit of Nick Farr Jones, a little bit of Alan Border, a little yeah. bit of whoever, whoever you've admired in, Nick, uh, in, in those roles in the past. Uh, and sometimes you forget to just be yourself. And Fight, yeah, yeah, find yourself. Did, mm. did, you, did you find,
0: uh, well, how long did it take you to feel okay? Because that 96 year was, was okay. 97 was just the pits. It was just, mm. you yeah, remember going to Argentina, I wasn't there, I remember you guys went to Argentina and we lost over there, and then it was, it was like it was, well, shits of trumps, if you could say that. Can I say that? I think you can. Um, it, w- it was pretty ordinary.
1: Yeah, it was pretty grim. Like 96 wasn't a bad year, except we couldn't beat the All Blacks, and we had some bad losses to them, and then we went on a, a tour that was, 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 probably never got the credit it deserved under Greg Smith as coach, and we, we were undefeated mm. through the UK and, and parts of Europe. And we didn't play a Grand Slam. The only team we didn't play on that trip was England. Uh, but we won four test matches and, and played reasonably, but really guts it out a bit. And then you're right, 97 was tough. And, and we had that horrible game in, um, in Pretoria. I actually missed that game. But, uh, so did I. Yeah, <laughs> so did you. So, um, and then we went on the trip to Argentina, played two tests, won one, lost one. And that was a really low moment. Mm then drew with England at Twickenham, and then went and beat Scotland, but in an unconvincing win. And then Rod McQueen had just taken over as coach from Greg Smith when we won in Argentina, then lost in Argentina. And uh, so it was a real, we had some come to Jesus moments after that. And it probably wasn't until Rod really challenged me on a number of fronts that I started to realise, okay, yeah, you know, it's going to take me to do something different in this role, mm. and where I had to challenge myself to, um, yeah, you know, to to really be the captain, not just to not just to follow
0: along. Do you remember that uh, nineteen ninety six tour we went on? We played those those test matches as you mentioned. We played Scotland, and one of the one of my vivid memories, and and it's it's small memories. You remember you remember the games, you remember the instances beforehand, and you remember we were lining up. And uh, I've just gone, I've looked out to our doctor and gone, Bestie, I've gone, like, I'm no good here. Like, I need to and we we're just about to meet Prince Susanne, I think it was. <laughs> and so I, I literally legged it from the field pff, on the throne. Bestie was singing the national anthem inside, and we we're about to kick off. And it usually, the referee goes, Captain, you ready? I remember you You were going like two, three, four, five. He said, We're down one. And I ran on <laughs> and went, All well, right, I'm good now. And he went, You're right. Like, what's going on? We're trying to start this test match. Um, so you've got to have uh, a, bit of, a bit of a laugh when you're playing. Um, how, Go back to Rod McQueen then, how did he he challenge you because uh, when when you're sitting on the external side of it as me being a player, not in that team meeting, that team environments and that kind of stuff, how how did he challenge you as a a captain or as a leader if that's the case?
1: He, and look it was a very fair challenge and um, and I challenged him as well. Uh, The essence of his challenge was you as the captain are not supporting what I want to do as coach. And then my challenge back to him was, Rod, well, you're not including me in, in anything. The first I'm often finding out about things is, is in the team meetings. And, look, it was a longer, more colourful conversation than sure. that, as you can imagine. But, but it really was, you know, it was that moment where, you know, the coach was able to really challenge the captain. And then at the end of that conversation, we basically, you know, made a pact that he would include me in everything and, and I would challenge things but we'd make sure we did that behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And then when, whenever we left that room, we were gonna be one. And it didn't matter who had won the particular argument, what what was the strategy we were taking, mm-hmm. we were never gonna be divided. So, because I think one of the risks as a captain sometimes is you are this conduit between management and even the administration, mm. team management, and the players. You can be that person in the middle a lot of the time. And so, so But but sometimes in that role, you've got to push back to management, sometimes administration, sometimes the players. And mm. so if you try to take any one of those three sides at the exclusion of all the others and you're doing that regularly, well, then, then you're not really doing your job. So for me, it was, it was probably that moment that I realised that, that I was in that, that role um, and I had to act as if I was in that role. Did you take that on to what is the now world, your business world? Is it that, is that a similar process? Oh, look definitely like everything you deal with there's always going to be conflicts conflicts and uh, different positions you've got to take at times and and whether you're on a in a board role whether you're more in a in a line role within a business or whether you're in a consulting role you're going to have a, a different hat on each time but but I think part of it is really understanding being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes and understand okay where are they coming from mm. and how can I help this interaction go
0: back to that team meetings uh... I used to hate them. I used to loathe them. You know, when when they're going through, you know, sort of, you know, what we're going to do and what we're going to play, and you know, I, I was because of my nature of my position. It was give me the ball and I'll I'll try and finish. Uh, did you enjoy the the strategy and the and and the team meetings, the endless team meetings that seemed to go on?
1: Look, it wasn't it wasn't uh, part of it wasn't the greatest part of the joy I found in rugby. That's for sure. Look, I, I knew you had to do it, and. Um, and I, I suppose when you're putting together a team, there's, there's a whole lot of different characters. And you've got people like yourself who, you yeah, know, you had that incredible natural talent, but you also had a commitment and like you knew that if you're asked to do something, you just do it. But then you've had, you, you had others that just needed to be taken along the journey, either um, on, mate, intellectually. No, 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 mate. Like, or, or even motivationally. Yeah. Uh so I think you realise that, you know, that that part, that analysis of the game was a necessary evil, um, or not, not an evil, but a necessarily part, necessary part of the equation. It wasn't something that I loved, and probably when I finished playing, part of the reason I finished is I lost the passion for that detail of the game. Like, I think you, you realise you couldn't just run out and play a game. There was all that stuff that went with it. I got bored with that much earlier than I got bored with playing. Uh, you dipped your hand in in the commentary role uh, with us with
0: Ten for a while. You did some stuff with Fox as well. And, and is that why? I mean, what I'm saying is, is there, there's some guys who are just students of the game uh, and and love the the intellectual property uh, of it. Is did that come back to you when you when you did that sort of commentary role, or is it still difficult to sort of work out? and frustration on top of that, watching the guys do their stuff?
1: Yeah, look, I've always been reasonably close to the game in different ways and I'm very passionate about watching. I still get really excited when I wake up the morning of a test match thinking I can't wait to watch it today and that... I think there's a difference between the analysis you do when you're writing an article or commentating on a game than there is when you're playing. And what I probably got bored of was that really deep analysis of understanding the ins and outs of every single line-out, what are the things that go into it, what is your strategy in that. But I love watching the game from a, a general strategic perspective and trying to understand, OK, what are, what are these teams' strengths? And there's many different ways to play a game of rugby, like the, you know, almost a limitless number of ways you, you, can, you can approach it. But to say, okay, you're up, it's, it's one team with these three strengths up against another team with a totally different set of strengths. So how can you best combat that team? Let me take you to 1996, Wellington, Athletic Park. We flew into... In one of the great moments. One of the, one of the <laughs> yeah. great
0: moments. 43-6 that day. Uh, we trained till about midnight, I remember, a couple of days before we got there and we thought we were just going to pack our bags and, and we, all of a sudden we were shifted out for training and we warmed up in the mud. It was just awful. Uh, and we didn't stand up to the harker. And you talk about conflict between coaches and that kind of stuff. Uh, the idea of not standing up to the harker, was that was that a hard one to take for you? Because uh, I think the directive was from the coach at the time, Greg Smith.
1: Yeah, Greg Smith, um, you know, really good guy, really interesting guy. And it was his first test as uh, coach against the All Blacks and my first test as coach as Sorry, yep. getting confused there. It was Greg's first test as coach against the All Blacks and mine as captain. I remember sitting on the plane next to him and he said, look, John, we we're talking about everything going on that week. And he said, look, I've been thinking a lot about the Harker. And he said, uh, you know, I don't think we should face the Harker this weekend. You know, it's this moment the All Blacks are doing something they're really passionate about. They're, they're fired up and we've just got to stand back and take it. Now, yeah, this this is part of that learning journey for me as a leader. I didn't agree with that, but I didn't have the courage and my conviction to say something. I was mm. hoping he'd forget about it. Mm. We get to the first team meeting, it's I've been having a chat with the captain and we're not gonna face the <laughs> harker this weekend. So <laughs> dumped.
0: Yeah. Sure, yeah. Um,
1: but <clears throat> you know, again I had the chance to say something and I didn't and I, I felt that it wasn't the right thing to do. I mean, whether it was or wasn't is you know, some people will think differently, but can't back um, used to do it anyhow. Campo, no, no right t- he back to toss the ball ar- yeah. around the back. Stretch. But it's, you know, we got beaten that day, and I think part of the reason we were beaten was not because we didn't face the Harker, but because I don't think we were that... Um, yeah, we, we didn't probably live up to what we, what we were as a team that day, and I think that was part of it. It wasn't that that f- fired the All Blacks up anymore, mm. but I think there was this aspect of us that we didn't take up the challenge we didn't really believe that we should be doing ball skills and drills right. while they were doing the Harker yeah and I think in the back of our mind we we diminished a bit from ourselves before the contest started I remember that game and we kicked off and we kicked deep left
0: in literally mud everywhere mm. remember deep left and then Jonah caught it and ran up Michael Bryle tackle him and then they end up scoring we kicked off again we kicked it long again and Jonah caught it up again Bash Briley and they end up scoring again down the track. And he came up to me the third time and he goes, mate, do us a favour, can you kick away from <laughs> Jonah, please? And I went, yeah, no worries. So I kicked it midfield and they threw a 20 metre pass to Jonah. <laughs> he ran straight over Briley again. It was, it was, relentless, it was relentless that day. Uh, is, it, would you, is it a regret that perhaps? I mean, you, you wouldn't have many regrets in your career, but was that a regret? Is that a moment you thought, wish you could go back in time and say, hey, I don't think that's right?
1: Yeah, look, I, I wish that, um, that I had a, you know, actually confronted it at the time rather than just let it drift. Um, it, it was interesting that, that the second of, of those games in Brisbane, we also didn't face the Harker. But at that stage, for that really? game, we pulled it in really tight amongst ourselves in okay. a huddle in front, the, in front of the Harker. And I think the difference was the first game we were totally disconnected. Yeah. We were disconnected from each other. Uh, we weren't a team, we are just going through ball skills and drills with the crowd drowning around, the haka mm. happening somewhere over in that direction. Um, whereas the second time we were focused, we were committed as a team, we had been embarrassed that first game, 43-6. Still the biggest losing margin ever yeah. against, for, for a Wallaby team against the All Blacks. That's, that's like
0: that's like the, the, when you open the beer and you say,
1: "Yeah, who was captain?" Yeah, 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 no, not, not one of the highlights. <laughs> um, but but we were totally connected in that in that second game. Then we led that whole game. Mm. We led till the last second when Frank Bunce basically scored, a, scored try a try to beat it. us yeah. at uh, Suncorp Stadium in '96. Yeah. So you know, so I think um, I think the lesson that we learned was. You know the lesson I certainly learnt was to, to stand up for what you believe and and that when the All Blacks do the Harker, they're connected and it's up to the other team to get connected to match that and whether it's in the Harker or beyond, but for, for the game. We weren't connected that first game, we didn't perform. We were connected to a cause, uh, which was a bit of retribution, Yeah. you know, uh, uh, we, yeah, just just, came,
0: we just came off beating South Africa too, I think it was. Yeah,
1: we, which for city. me actually was still... I, I count that because they were the world champions, undefeated in 15 games. Yeah. We played them the week after we were shamed in the in that Bledisloe match. I still count that victory as one of the favourites of my career okay. because it was a complete turnaround from our team. And we really focused on what what we could do differently as a team, what we needed to bring to it as a team but also what individuals could do to make a difference. I remember focusing specifically speaking to everyone on the team saying okay everyone on the team has to cause a turnover in the game. Yeah. Cuz Bob Dwyer used to always talk about if everyone caused one turnover 15 turnovers you win the game. Yeah. And and so we had that focus and I remember it was Brawley actually you know called asked him to you know turn over at the breakdown and w- 5 minutes into the game he yells out there's one for me Elsie. and then <laughs> then another 20 minutes there's another one and and but it just gave everyone that really different focus yeah and it was a it was a tough grinding win in many respects but really restored our faith in ourselves
0: that's half time already we'll take a quick break then we'll hear more from the great man John Eels stay with us Are you ready for your fix on all things politics? Introducing the professor and the hack. Almost like Weekend at Bernie's. You've got the dead body getting dragged around. <laughs> Listen now. Welcome back to Talking Rugby with me, Matt Burke, and today we're chatting with my Wallaby captain, John Eels. Um, roll on three years. And you go 99. And you talk about sort of making a statement um, and. I've only learned about this afterwards uh, that the Kiwis came and spoke to us and is in the management because the French were going pretty hard on the on the, the the grabbing down below, the the fish hooks in the mouth and the eye gouges, that kind of stuff. What did you say to the ref uh, ten,
1: fifteen minutes into that game? It was more into the second half, I think it was. We, we, look we knew that it was going to be a you know a tough game and uh, we knew that the French have incredible capacity to to perform, but yeah, they'll also be looking to put us off our game in any particular way they could. Yeah. So, so one of the things we spoke about as as a team, and certainly I spoke with Rod about, was that if there was any issues, that people would have come to me, and I would speak to the ref. And so, if I mean, ever there's and this any is the World issues, Cup final I'm talking yeah. about, yeah, yeah, If ever there was any issues, I, I spoke with Andre Watson, and you know, I had a really good rapport with him, and you know, just kept kept talking about what, you know, just just saying, yeah, this is what's happening. Yeah, you know, we we just want to let you know, and uh, then it came to, yeah, the the time. I think eventually he, yeah, you know, he actually spoke to them and their captain, and uh, yeah. So we, then there wasn't really anything after that. Did you know we we're going to win that World Cup?
0: I mean, oh. After you won '91, and he knew what the job was
1: at hand. Yeah. Did you know we we're going to win? I think you never let yourself believe you're going to win in some respects because you know that uh, that as soon as you do that you can lose and particularly against teams like the French or you know, whoever, South Africa in the semi-final. But uh, I, I knew that we could win it. I knew that we had the team that could win it and I missed the game in Sydney where the, you guys beat the All Blacks mm. in incredible victory. It was still a record equal mm. margin against the All Blacks. Mm. And um, so that was, you know, I think that gave everyone a lot of confidence, but you, know, you still have that incredible nervousness going into a final because you know at the end of that week you're either going to be world champions or you're not. And it's a pretty stark difference, I'd imagine. Mm. Um, and, and so I found it hard to sleep that week because you're so excited. You just want to get out there and play the game. But you've also got that nervousness. you you're playing things forward in your mind. You've got to stop and reverse and just think, okay, let's go back to the process. What are the things we have to do that will make a difference? Were you uh, were you nervous in any way getting the cut from the Queen? No, look, by that stage, you, your emotions are not nerves at all. It, it's just relief, really. Mm. Number one, it's, it's relief. And number two, it's just an incredible sense of satisfaction because you know that that trophy is not the result of 80 minutes. It's not the result of one season you know for some people it's the result of a lifelong dream yeah. and at the very least you know for pretty much everyone on the on the field that day it was a you know a 2 to 4 year journey for some it probably been two fairly solid years for others of us you know it'd been when we got knocked down in 95 pretty grim got worse and then it was that journey from the bottom and i think the bottom was really the Yeah, that that game against uh, South Africa in Pretoria, sixty-seven. Not many. Yeah, it wasn't horrible, and I was on the sideline watching it. And and then the the Argentinian game. Yeah, those were were a couple of lows that really, you know, highlighted how great the highs were.
0: you scored two test tries. I think that is that right? Yeah, yeah. But you've got over you got a thousand points there about because of goal kicking. Do you enjoy that? Did you enjoy that part? Or Did you enjoy
1: taking the ball from me, having a kick after I've had a shocker? Well, that uh, that did happen a couple of times. Though, <laughs> you didn't it, it was funny because like it's hard to believe that I ever had to take the ball from you to have a kick because you're one of Australia's greatest ever kickers. And did you, did you, um, rip, did you get that on? Did you get that? <laughs> Well, the first time I ever did kick was, uh, I think you kicked the first half against uh, Romania. Romania in Stellenbosch, yeah. and then our great captain, Rod McCall, yes. in the only test he ever captained. Is that right? Yeah, he, he said this, to me that's at That's the Queenslander time, coming out, is it? Yeah, is yeah. It was? Yeah, right. He said to me at halftime. he said, right, you're kicking from now, and, and I had four kicks and got them all, so.
0: Hang on a sec, hang on a sec, back up. Four kicks from <laughs> literally the touchline. Like, it was like, it was... I'm missing him from in front, and, and he comes on. I remember, I never forget it. You're hitting from the sideline, so and we watched the, you know, the video, the replay, and you know, the second camera go it, the, You watch Eelsy knock it over from the sideline. You know, size what, fifteen boots, sixteen boots, and then they just pander me. I, I, and, and, and it's, that, it's like all you want to do is go, you piece of sh-. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to let it run. So, uh, so then, uh, take you back to, um, well, obviously the leading question is now go to Wellington. And uh, in two thousand, where and it's one of the great, great moments where you've looked at the referee, we've got the penalty. It was like seven minutes over, I think it was, um, and you've you've pointed to the referee and said, "We're going to go for the post." And then as you sort of turn around and walk back, there was no, I think it was Sterling Mortlock, wasn't it? There was no yeah. Sterling Mortlock on the field, and it was like, who, "Who told you that you <laughs> had to kick the goal?"
1: Yeah, Sterling was the was the kicker that day, and Rod had just taken him off the field. I think he had had cramps or something like that, so. I got the um, yeah, I was looking up, and I'm looking for Sterling. Where's Sterling? And Jeremy Paul said, "Mate, he's not. He's not on the field." I think it might be your kick. So I knew it was my kick. It wouldn't have been very good of the captain to pass it on to someone else. So, look, I think kicking was never something I coveted, but I quite enjoyed doing it at training, and I'd done it from a young age. And um, so you get to those moments, and as soon as you know it's yours. You have this combination of just pure excitement, because you actually, that's why you play the game. You genuinely get excited about those moments. But then also, you know a little bit of fear. And I think if I had had that kick at the start of my career, it, it may have ended very differently, because I by that stage, I'd kicked a lot of times under a lot of different pressures, and I had a set routine. Mm. And so in those moments where there is all that pressure and intensity, you're able to sort of put that aside. You still feel the adrenaline, as you would well know, better than me. And you, you go back to those moments where yeah, and, and you, you get, put, put all the noise aside and you go to your routine. And for me, because I probably, being a forward, we did a lot more heavy legwork. Yeah, and uh, so I probably couldn't kick as much as a lot of the, the backs could as far as practising. Mm-hmm. So for me, my technique became probably even more important because I needed to be able to switch to it uh, and I couldn't practise and practise and practise. Um, I'd still practise a lot, but you know, the volume was probably down a bit. Um, so I had a very set routine. It was three steps back, three steps across. I'd say to myself three things. Head down. And when I said head down, that would be the signal to to pick a specific stitch on the ball which would keep my weight over the top of the ball, like golf, which you know you know a lot better than me. I'm learning how to goal kick, <laughs> by the way, at the moment.
0: <laughs> I used to just kick the
1: ball. You know, it's a head down. The second one was slow because you can always go too fast, mm-hmm. but you're never going to go too slow. And the third one was follow through to the posts. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes this, okay, that's a manageable bite-sized chunks which you can do rather than just... Going on instinct, yeah, right, which can be unreliable. And you sit there
0: going, ah, 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 "I've got to get the goal. We're losing at the moment. I've yeah. got to get it. If I miss it, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a villain." Um, roll on then to because we had a reasonable time there where we, uh, you kick the goal in Wellington, Sturlock kick the goal in uh, Durban for a win over South Africa for the Tri Nations. Uh, Kef scores a try. I kick a goal. Um, talk me through yeah. your Kef one because that was that was the end of your career, wasn't it?
1: Um, yeah, that was.
0: Basically the end,
1: so 2001, um, yeah, Kef scored that brilliant try, like we, you know, it was that time where we did have a lot of faith in ourselves and we just kept plugging the line and getting penalties, we weren't going for goal because we were, you know, we needed four points to to tie, so five point try, Um, and we just kept plugging the line, having confidence and someone kept pulling it out, you know, at at different stages, Bernie Larkham in a yeah, semi-final, yep. as you say, yourself and different people, different stages. And that night it was Kef. And somehow with about five people on top of him, he was able to still get through and get his arm out and, and score the try. So and the
0: match-winning try, what did you say to him afterwards? What's, the, what's Or what does he say that you said to him?
1: Uh, well, I think after I said you friggin' beauty or something, <laughs> something similar... Um, I did promise him that I'd buy him a drink every t- any time that he wanted that we were together somewhere. Has he cashed in? Well, the problem was that everywhere we went, the drinks were free. <laughs> so he kept on telling people that uh, for years, kept on telling people that... Oh, um, uh, he still hasn't bought me that drink. Oh, right. So I ended this one time when I was w- happened to be walking in London. He was in a bar in London. I saw him. I walked into the bar... Didn't say hi, just went straight up to the bar, bought him a drink, said, Kev, I've bought you a drink. Now. There you go. I've that's bought it. you a
0: drink. I've, I've got you in there. Um, he's gone on to the coaching side. He's over in uh, Tonga now. Uh, did you have any aspiration to do the, the coaching stuff or when the boots literally came off, it was hung up and sort of, that's it? No charity games, no nothing?
1: No, I've literally I took the boots off that day, 1st of September, 2001. I've never put a football boot on again. Is that right? Yeah, never. Never. Not so you don't like charity? <laughs> <of stuff. laughs> Try um, to help it in different ways, you, you but could, I'd end up being the charity if I, if I played it another game. Couldn't get enticed to go back and play? No. Nothing? Look, I, I just, yeah, for me it was, you yeah, that I loved it, loved it till the end, but that was the chapter closed and, um, yeah, there was nothing, uh, you know, I, d- I didn't need to play anymore. I wanted to move on and, and do other things and, uh, yeah. So I still love watching it. I've always loved watching it. Yep. I remember you know, a week later or weeks later, I was still getting excited going to watch games. But it's amazing how quickly your, your mind goes from that game-playing mentality to the, be the next week and you look at it and you wonder, how do I ever play that game? Mm. To, <laughs> because, sit, to sit yeah. in the stands and realise how good it is mm. in the stands. It, what it just watching the stands. Just... And look, I never wanted to do coaching because I think to be a coach you really have to be passionate about the detail of the game. And mm. as I mentioned earlier, part of the reason I finished was because I lost that passion for the, the deep detail of what you needed to do.
0: Now, you loved your, your golf along your way. I've played with you on, when we are on tour and we have a muck around game as well with a few other boys as well. Uh, and you've met plenty of people around the world, from politicians to royalty to mm. you know, rock stars and the rest of it. Who, who would make up a John Eales four ball yeah. if, you, if you're going to have a hit? Who, who would you like to take out on the track?
1: Well, are they on my team? They would be on your team, yes. Look, I always loved uh, watching, um, yeah, Greg Norman play, and and yeah, when I was growing up, he was a Queenslander and he was a Great White Shark, and yeah, he was number one in the world forever, and so uh, I, I think he'd have to be one. Um, that doesn't have, think be, doesn't have to be golfers, by It doesn't the way. have to be golfers. No, no. I was going to say if it had to be golfers, I, you know, Wayne Grady was just a fun. Guy as well, and know, yeah, one major was very generous with his time. He'd be another guy for was golfers. Gee, who else would it be? Um, like if, you,
0: if you would go to eighteen holes and you don't want boring chat, yeah. Who who have you got? Because you've done all the. It was,
1: the yeah, politicians. It's a hard question. I, I, I think you'd. Yeah, it's like that dinner party conversation. I I, I would. Um, I don't know if they could play golf or not, but I've always been fascinated by <laughs> musicians and their ability to, to tell a story in a few words. And I reckon one of the great songwriters of all time is Paul Simon. And like his, his lyrics, um, Michael Stipe would be another one, R.E.M. And those guys I, I think would be fascinating too. I'd love to understand what was behind some of the, the lyrics of some of the songs that they wrote. Right. Keep them for the bar afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, they can bring a guitar along. I say, oh, look, there happens to be a guitar. (laughs) There happens to be a guitar. Nelson Mandela would be one too, I reckon. You know, just to to think, you know, people who have gone through genuine struggle in life and then risen out of that maintained an incredible humility, but also maintained an incredible ability to forgive people who had, you know, done some pretty horrible things to them. We often talk about heroes
0: uh in the current mob and who are the heroes for the kids that kind of stuff you would have had your heroes
1: growing up who was who did you look up to uh from a rugby perspective there was three guys it was paul mclean tony shaw and mark line okay yeah they're all playing for queensland but they're all i think the great thing about rugby is is a game where you've got all these people from different different walks of life and having those three guys who yeah they're my heroes i used to watch them when i was young got to meet them all. They were better blokes than they were rugby players, better men than they were rugby players and and that was the calibre of the game and I really felt that was the same in our teams. Um, yeah, there were some great rugby players but each of those people you'd say were great were, were, were better people than best, they were. Best tour you went on? And, and it'd be different now. I,
0: I, I look at these guys now and think they're touring compared to what we did.
1: Yeah. You know what, do we, or do, we, or do, we need, do we need to do
0: another podcast just for yeah, that Yeah, no, the, the,
1: the, <laughs> you could. The Australian Barbarians tour to Canada in 1995. Um, it was really my first go at being a captain, and it was a very different tour. We played six games across the breadth of Canada. We started on the, on the, um, on the west coast. We went all the way across to the St John's, Newfoundland, which is the island off the east mm. coast, then we went all the way back to the west coast, travelling economy and on school buses and old school. and and whatnot. It was an old school tour, and uh, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges was getting people out of the nightclubs at midnight, <laughs> one a.m. the night before the game. It was one of those before the old school tours because, like, it was uh, it, it 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 was a last amateur tour mm. because rugby turned professional after that, so. It was a, a lot of fun. And a few guys from that ended up going on and being really significant players for Australia as well. There it is. That's the full-time whistle. Thanks, Ilsey. Thanks for coming on 10 Speaks Rugby Podcast,
0: Talking Rugby. It's been great to hear some of your fantastic stories and insights. Pleasure, Berkey.
1: Uh, shit. Try Australia. Patience rewarded.
0: You've been listening to Talking Rugby with me, Matt Burke. Monty. Yes. I've heard you like podcasts. I do. What kind of podcast do you like? All sorts. Well, we've got all sorts on Ten Speaks. Have you heard of Ten Speaks? No. Well, we have various podcasts like The Professor and the Hack with Peter Van Unselen and Hugh Rimmington, The Western Front, a look at. AFL from a West Australian perspective with Tim Gossage and Lockie Reed. Have you got any views of AFL from a South Australian perspective? No, we did not. Okay. <laughs> All right. What if? Um... We're having fun. <laughs> I Suppose this. Is the okay. Most okay. Thing. We won't be here for long. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? What if? What if? I... Did you go to university for this? <laughs>